Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, Unfiltered, a session created in partnership with Auckland Museum for the 2019 festival. Four writers, young women from diverse cultural backgrounds, were invited to respond creatively to items they had selected from within the museum's documentary heritage collection. The resulting pieces deal with diaspora, distance and culture shocks with both wit and insight. Ena iwi o te motu tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Nā mihi nui ki Going West Festival. I want to mihi to the ancestors past and present and acknowledge the mana whenua on whose land we gather on today. Uh, welcome to you all on this, um, to the Sunday session titled Unfiltered. I'm Dina Jezic and it is my pleasure to be in conversation with four writers and their new work. Sarai De Silva Cameron, Louise Tu, Tua Savili Tupotala and Lucy Z. Welcome. Mohammed Hassan is sadly unable to be here with us today, but um, it's actually because he got a really cool job offer in London and he's gone off to join the Brexit. <laughs> this session, Unfiltered, will be divided into two parts. First part will be focused on the readings, and this is a good part, and the second is going to be just, uh, just a little bit of a conversation that we're going to have about the process. But before we start, I'd like to tell you what this, how this project came about, and uh, really was about hanging out with these really exceptional writers, that was really my dream. So I'm thinking at the end of this, we can just go on a holiday together and that will be the end. (laughs) Um, They were invited to explore the museum's documentary heritage collection, which was actually guided and supported with the curatorial, uh, curatorial knowledge of Nina Finnegan and the wider team of the documentary heritage collection. And it also happens to be one of the museum's largest collections that includes manuscripts, ephemera, and photography, which actually turns out to be about, you know, quite a lot of quite a lot of objects in the sort of number of millions. And many are yet to be digitized, and they are all residing in the Auckland Museum Library that is actually publicly accessible and often used for research. Through a process of discussion, exploration, and discovery, each writer selected an object in the collection as inspiration to create new work, and you'll be able to see these objects um, projected behind us as they read. This project is rooted in the impossible entanglements of identity, diaspora, and decolonial desire. However, it is also framed by curatorial activism, particularly by posing the question whose memories, identities, and experiences are reflected in the collections of colonial museums. And depending on who is asking, this question may be met with silence. And now for the introductions in order of appearance. Uh, Tua Savili Tipotala is a Samoan writer, poet, and English teacher at Mangere College. Her work has been published in Eka journal, journal, and she has performed spoken word in slams, as well as in plays. She belongs, belongs to the Blackfriars Theatre Group, who are currently working on the last instalment of Southside Rise called The Revolution. Lucille Z is a video content creator based in central Auckland. Over the past 10 years, she has worked as a freelance writer, videographer, and creative producer. She uses her technical skills and experience from a Chinese New Zealand background to help provide a voice for marginalized communities and people who may otherwise be overlooked. Sarai De Silva Cameron is an actor, journalist, theatre maker. Her work critiques contemporary feminism and illuminates white supremacy. She is currently working on a podcast called Conversations with My Immigrant Parents for RNZ National, and I'm so excited about it, I can't wait to hear what that sounds like. 
Louise, too, writes, directs, and produces work with her company, We Should Practice, with nearly two decades of live and screen performance and screen production work behind her. She focuses on diverse Pacific Island experiences. So I think with that, I'll just shut up and I'll let these extraordinary writers read their work. My name is Toa Sevili Lillian Tiputala. Mumua ona watele be inga malafufutai le tuma malayalo ne abono. Emu paina mafuta fatasieta cho. I just wanted to give thanks um, to the higher powers for this opportunity that we are able to share under this roof today. Um, my piece is called Talanoa, and I I go on a journey with a lot of my friends and my mentors on the origins of the word Talanoa. Um, who's, who here has heard the word Talanoa before? Raise your hand. Cool, what are some uh, definitions that we've heard of Talanoa? Talk, yes. Any other definitions? Togetherness, yes. One more definition? Learning, conversation, cool. Journey. All really, really, really great um, definitions of Talanoa. Um, when I decided to write about Talanoa, um, I decided to talk about my journey and coming to realize what does Talanoa mean to me, what does it mean in my culture, and the importance of it. Um, so in 2012, my father passed away. A friend of mine, Sopo, who had also lost his father, spoke to me about seeing a therapist or seeing someone. He said that we Samoans were not as smart as the Palangi. When we lost someone we loved and cherished, we were told to fa'amalosi, lototele, which loosely translates to be strong, get over it, have a strong heart. When Palangi people lost people, they were taught to seek guidance, find a counselor or a therapist. He went on to speak about how we Samoans didn't understand mental health. We are not as smart as the Palangi who studied and understood that, he said. As you can imagine, everything he said would go on to haunt me. Through the years, the word Talanoa would, he, would be lightly tossed around me, and yet I'd feel the sharp edge of it. Not something I noticed until after my father had passed away and the conversation I had with Sopo. Every time I heard it, Talanoa, it sparked something I was in... I sparked something in me. I was invited to a Talanoa, and the man who broke down the word Talanoa said that it meant to meet. His definition, his definition frustrated me. Deep down inside, I knew it meant something else. I remember later that year writing poetry for a production called For the Luminati, in which I explained how important the poets and the orators were. They were important because there are no direct translations from Samoan to English. One Samoan word could lead to another paragraph or, or an essay of similes in English. This is where we need our orators to tell the stories of what mere words in Samoan could loosely tra be translated into English. I began having conversations with my mother about the word Talanoa. I remember knowing exactly what Tala meant. Tala could mean to open or words, depending on your context. Then I questioned Noah. 
I thought of the ropes right away. I thought about when my sister Darlene taught me how to tie my shoe, when my parents would shout at me whenever my shoes were untied. To'a, no noa o Flashbacks of tying, crisscrossing the bunny rabbits came flooding back. Just over a year ago, my mentor, also my uso matua, Dr. Michelle Johansson, created a skeleton of characters and their names for our production, The Revolution. One of the characters' names was Talanoa. Talanoa would be the storyteller. I thought about the strength of the name, the importance. I immediately found a connection to the character as an orator, poet, and storyteller myself. Months later, which was also months ago, I went on a road trip with my sister, Marina. It was a spiritual journey in which I told her about my depression and what I was going through. I tried to think of what was the Psalm 1 word for depression. I thought back to the conversation I had with um, Sopo about my father and when he said that Psalm 1 didn't understand mental well-being. So I really, really dug deep and I was standing there just trying to think, how do you say sad in Psalm 1? And then it came to me. The Psalm 1 word for sad or the closest that you can get to depression is fa'anu'anu'a. Fa'a is a causative prefix, which means to be like, or to be, or try to be. Noa noa means not after not, or tie the knot. My shoelaces, the bunny ears, the knots, the noose that one of my best friends had used to wrap around the tree and drain his life came to my mind. And when I thought about him, all I wanted to do was untie, undo the knot, open the noose. I wanted to tell Anoa. I was standing in a petrol station in Manurewa when it all hit me. I cried, I gave thanks. It was through all of that that I had learned that the answer and the key to Fa'anoa Noa and depression was to Talanoa. And Fa'anoa Noa means to be like the knot, to tie the knot, to tie the noose. And the only answer would be to undo the noose, undo the knot, and that was through Talanoa. And through that depth, I also realized that my friend, Sopo, was wrong. We Samoans had already known. We already knew what mental well-being was. We already knew what Fa'anoa was. We already had the cure. We already had the key. And um, when I went into this, um, into this project with the Oakland Museum, I was... I knew I wanted to think, I wanted to do the project on my culture and my country, um, which is kind of weird. I know I'm standing here with an American accent, but I was actually born in New Zealand, uh, raised in the States. But since I've been back, I've learned so much about my culture. I've learned a lot about what it means to be Samoan and the depth of my Samoanness, which means going back and undoing those words, undoing the. Um, the lens that have been put before us so that we thought that we didn't know. Um, when, I, when I came across this picture with um, Nina, I told her I needed to find a picture, I needed to find something that showed ropes or lashings or ties. In this picture, the woman is holding um, the pandanus leaves in which we take and we weave fine mats. Fine mats can become a part of our clothing. It can become of everyday use. It is also um, a form of monetary gifts. It is very high value. 
Um, normally, this takes all the women of the village to do, or all the women of the family. And it is when we sit here and we weave these leaves, that's when we pass the stories. It's passed down from generation to generation and sideways on the ladder. Thank you. Hello, hello. Um, kind of embarrassed to be at a writer's festival when I've only read one book in the last six years completely. <laughs> Um, which is even worse because I'm in like three different book clubs and I've still only read one book completely and I've like I've drank like 20 samosas no mimosas <laughs> I've drank oh god I'm probably drinking samosas right now I've drank at least like 20 mimosas but I've definitely only finished one book in the last six years so the last book that I read was this one it is called New Zealand Chinese and Historical Images by Phoebe H. Lee and John B. Turner, which I found in the Auckland Museum Library, the first library that I've set foot in in the last 19 years. Oh, so I loved to read when I was a kid. Ever since I was a little girl, books were my escape. And in less than a year, I read the entirety of The Babysitter's Club, and I loved it because there was an Asian character in it named Claudia. I've read every John Marsden novel. I can remember all of Paul Jennings' short stories. And when I was about, I think, 11, I tried to read Once Were Warriors in A Clockwork Orange. And the upside of having like Asian immigrant parents is they don't know what books to censor their children from. <laughs> so yeah. Um, and I read lots because I grew up in a really, really small town. I think it had a population of 2,000, 3,000. Um, so hanging out at my local public library was just great. It was really, really fantastic. And I think I pushed myself to read a lot because I wanted my English to be really good. And when I was born and raised here, I knew that when people looked at me, they would assume that I couldn't speak English or English wasn't my first language. And I ended up being really good at English, I think. I think <laughs> I'm pretty good at English. Um, I did come on top first in my class for English and I was really good at like speeches and debating. Um, and I was so good that I just ignored every other subject. So I failed NCA <laughs> level one maths. I really hate maths and hopefully a lot of people in this room will agree with me. Numbers aren't, numbers suck. <laughs> so like if I look at a page of numbers, I, I feel seasick. I can't memorize dates. I can't, I don't even know my, my own phone number. I forget the address that I live at sometimes. So, yeah, numbers aren't good. I really don't like them. And I found out in high school that some maths also involve letters. Like, they don't have enough numbers that they have to use letters. They literally have infinity numbers. <laughs> um, so, yeah, obviously I don't understand maths. And I was really, really bad at maths, just like Claudia from the Babysitter's Club book. So, if I loved books so much, why did I only end up reading one book in the last six years? Well, I'm actually scared of libraries now, but more so librarians. Librarians. So the head librarian at yeah, the head librarian at um, the small town didn't like me very much from the beginning. Um, I'm not sure why. I think maybe she just disliked children, or maybe we were messy or loud. I don't know. I don't know why she didn't like me. I don't care. Um, so, but I did go to the library. It didn't stop me. I went to the library every single day after school for about five or six years and I would chew through two to three books. Like I would just like go, just like chew through them every week. And 
Do you know what else true through my books? Mice, mice and slugs, because I left my school bag in the garage over the school holidays one day with the books in it, with a rotting banana and a bottle of strawberry-flavoured Primo. <laughs> and so when I did find the bag, and I found these rotten, mouldy poop books, do you know what I did with those books? I walked straight down to the library, and I pushed them into the returns chute. <laughs> and I walked home, mouse poop and all. Um, a few hours later, my mum answered a knock at the door, <laughs> and the librarian was there. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you she looked exactly like Mrs. Doubtfire. She was very busty, grey hair, big glasses, and the, the most thunderous look I've ever seen on someone's face. Oh, God, it, was, I, it still burned in my brain. So there she was, holding the wet, feces-speckled book in a plastic bag, and, yeah. I mean, I told you it was a very small town. She knew exactly where I lived. Um, I got into a lot of trouble. And if the librarian didn't like me before, when I returned books intact, dry, <laughs> there was no way I could go back after this incident. And I never went back after that. And I never saw Claudia from the Babysitter's Club books ever again. And I avoided every library in the world and until I came to write this speech a few weeks ago. So for this project, I knew that I wanted to talk about something that was important to me. And I wondered, what should I talk about? Well, I could think of Asian food, but there's enough young white people on Instagram talking about that and doing a better job than me. What would I know about Asian food? Um, a couple of months ago, my auntie passed away from a rare cancer, and she worked as a, like a sewing machinist in the 80s and 90s. Um, and I couldn't find much information about her and the people in that era. And then I wondered, oh, maybe I could talk about this old Chinatown building that I remember from my childhood. And it was at the bottom of the waterfront in the city. And then the more people I spoke to about it, the more I wondered if that building existed. No one seems to know anything about it, but it, I'm pretty sure it existed. Um, so I couldn't think of what to talk about, but the theme in my stories was China and Chinese. So I went into the Collections Online Museum website and I searched in the word China, and up came hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ceramics. So many ceramics. But I eventually did find a book, which was this book here, and it's called, again, uh, The New Zealand Chinese and Historical Images. And it's a great title because it tells you exactly what to expect in the book. Historical Images of... New Zealand Chinese, yep. Um, so that's nearly 19 years later, I finally stepped, in, I stepped foot into a library again, and I was thrown back into the feeling of like nervousness and fear from when I dropped off that, that gross book. And I know that libraries are supposed to be a safe space for people seeking information, and they welcome everyone, and they're a very important resource for communities, but that librarian from my small town was really scary, and like I made a mistake. I destroyed a book and I was never able to face that fear again. I mean, until I walked into the Auckland Museum Library, which I didn't know existed. Um, there didn't seem to be very many books on Chinese people in New Zealand. Like finding Asian representation in books when I was a kid was like trying to find a needle in a haystack mm. covered in hay bales with hay soldiers. It was just impossible. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I was really, really desperate for Asian representation in books that... Claudia from the Babysitter's Club is Japanese, and I'm not Japanese, but her jet, back, jet black hair and 
almond-shaped eyes and funky style was all I could really aspire to. But she wasn't real, and the people in this book were real and are real. So as I flicked through, I found another image, if you can see two on the left, and it's a copy of a poll tax certificate. So it's a piece of paper with some personal information and some fingerprints, and it's a very, very, very expensive piece of paper. And I did a bit of research, and sadly for me, I discovered there was so many numbers. <laughs> um, so please bear with me. The Chinese, immigration, uh, the Chinese Immigrant Act of 1881 introduced a poll tax of 10 pounds to any Chinese people wanting to enter New Zealand. And not only that, they added that one Chinese passenger per 10 tons of cargo on a ship was allowed to enter. So our privilege to come into this country was based on pretty much how much tea colonizers wanted to drink that month. <laughs> then about 15 or so years later, they decided to up the tax and the cargo. So now for every 200 tons of cargo, one Chinese person was allowed to come on board and now they had to pay 100 pounds. And like I mentioned before, I'm really, really bad with numbers. And I've gotten, as I've gotten older, I've figured out ways to solve maths problems without actually having to do it myself. And my maths, told, my maths teacher told me, you need to remember how to work things out because you're not always going to have a calculator with you. <laughs> Sadly, she couldn't predict the future. And find out <laughs> we, we all have the calculator app on our phone. She also said, you need to know the formulas so you can work things out. No one's just going to automatically do it for you. So in 2019, I opened up Google and I searched how much was 100 pounds in 1896. And I'm not even joking. The first website brought it up for me. In 1896, 100 pounds was $19,661.72 with inflation. Don't ask me what inflation is. I don't really understand. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's nearly $20,000. Does anyone here have $20,000 in savings? No, me neither. I don't think I've ever seen $20,000. Um, I'm pretty sure I've paid $20,000 in tax this year, though. So anyway, so they tried to poll, uh, they tried to poll tax Indian people too, but Indian people were part of the British Empire, so that plan didn't fly. They literally just didn't want Chinese and Indian faces because it didn't fit in with what they called uh, the fairer Britain of the South Seas. Um, in 2002, the New Zealand government officially apologised to the Chinese for suffering, for the suffering that was caused by the poll tax, and it actually was the first nation to do so in the British colonies. And I got all this information from that book, and had I not stepped into the library and found this whisper of a thread of information in a book, would I have ever known the history of Chinese people in New Zealand? So why, as a 32-year-old woman, do I kind of only know this now? I was never taught about it in school, and I even grew up in a mining town. So we learned all about World War I and World War II. We learned about Captain Cook, which are important. But we also were given two weeks and taught about the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. I could tell you so many facts about that. <laughs> and sure, we went on field trips. We went to the Auckland Art Gallery, Te Papa, Auckland Museum, libraries. But I did, did I see any information about this? Absolutely not. And like Chinese people really suffered at the start of this country and they lived off scraps. And when the mining drive, dry, dried out, they lived in poverty. They were far from their families, stuck in a country they couldn't afford to be in or weren't welcome to stay in. And this affected generations to come. So the fear of Chinese was rooted in society and pretty much damaging 
any chance of a clean state for people with faces like mine. And I didn't know any of this. So I'm wondering, like, are we responsible for our own ignorance? Like, if you don't know something, how do you know you don't know it? And who's there to tell you? My school didn't tell me. I didn't see it in museums or libraries. And I wonder, what are these institutions for, if not to educate, with the constant changing face of what a New Zealander looks like? And like, whose fault is it if a young person doesn't know their history? Like a Chinese person who doesn't know any about, anything about this? Or a young Polynesian kid who doesn't know about the dawn raids and who the Polynesian Panthers were? Will there be tamariki in schools who don't know what happened at Bastion Point and how that history is literally being reflected today? Will there be a time in the future where children in schools don't even know about what happened to the Muslim community in Christchurch? I don't know. But you will be happy to know that I didn't take this book home. It didn't sit at the bottom of my bag for mice and slugs to get to. It's sitting at the Auckland Museum Library on a dry, primo milk-free environment <laughs> protected by the librarians of Auckland Museum for another, hopefully, another young Chinese person to discover. Oh my God. I have my um, mic in my bag because I don't have any pockets because they don't make women's clothes with pockets. <laughs> um, is this, can you hear me? Is this good? Okay, cool. Um, Kia ora, vanakam. My name is Sarait. Um, I, yeah, have this, had this really cool opportunity to go through this collection and um, look at some stuff, find some cool stuff. Um, my grandmother passed away in February and I've kind of found that everything I read, everything I look at brings me back to her, makes me think about her. It was kind of the only thing I could have sat in. I could have sat in? Oh my God, I'm literally at a writer's festival and I just tried to use the word satin <laughs> for sat. Cool, cool, cool. Um, yeah, so I just feel like everything I do brings me back to my grand. Everything I write about is about her. Um, I'm really interested to put myself in her shoes. You know, when someone passes away, you can't, um, you think about all these questions that you should have asked, you know, and like things you wanted to know that you'll never get to know. So the only way you can know it is by imagining it. Um, yeah, so this piece is me imagining her coming to New Zealand. Um, I was looking at recipe books. I was trying to find out how um, New Zealanders made South Asian food. Um, they had some pretty interesting ways of cooking it. Um, yeah, anyway, so this is um, recipes from many races. I was just looking for like ethnic books, you know, like what are, how are they, how are they making this food? Um, the Madras lobster kind of rolled me. Um, it has apples and sultanas in it. Cool. <laughs> okay, um, yeah, so this is me 
reading you guys from my grandmother. You grow up on rice, oyster omelette, and guilt. You're a good Catholic girl. You always do your homework, not because they tell you to, but honestly, just because you like it. You read a bit too much, and you really like sports, but no one really likes you playing them, so you stop. When you're 22, you fall in love. Sometimes your youngest brother, Mark, opens the letters Renzi writes you, or the ones you write him back, and he sees the pages all covered with lipstick marks and scented with your perfume. You can't really be mad, though. He's only 10. He thinks it's funny. Funny that you went to Chennai for three days, came back, and broke off your engagement. Something you'll feel guilty about for the next 30 years, but Renzi was worth it. Renzi, who changed the spelling of his name so that both of yours ended in Z-I. Renzi and Mitzi, lovers who wait for each other for five years. When you finally get to Sri Lanka, it is dirty and crowded. And there is jungle and monitor lizards and people are a lot friendlier than what you're used to. They hug here. Singapore was easier, it just made sense. But now Rienzi is the thing that makes sense, so you get on with it. And although they speak a different language, his family are Catholic too. They think you look like a doll. With your deep voice and your long hair and your tiny feet, to them you're pretty much the best thing anyone could leave the country for three days and bring home five years later. You can't believe how fast you fall in love with the De Silvers. Loud, city-dwelling Singhalese who make you laugh and teach you how to cook their way. Every meal a base of green or red chilli, rumpeh, garlic, onion and coconut. Always coconut. Broken at the kitchen, scraped at the bench into fluffy mounds and then pressed into milk. It takes you a while, but with Rienzi's truly terrifying sister Therese next to you, you get it. Then, after only a few years and a few children, you say goodbye again, pack it all up and head to England, which is cold. Cold days, cold nights, cold people. Both you and Rienzi used to think that you two might find it a little bit easier there, with your one God and your English prayers that you might a little bit get them the English, but you don't, and they don't get you, and the kids drop their accents with a speed that is frightening. But Renzi gets certified as a psychiatrist. Here in these white institutions, with their white promises and white paper, and you make your way to your real end goal, New Zealand. The trip is long. Three weeks on a boat with three children is no laughing matter, but you're heading somewhere better, somewhere with trees and houses that have gardens, and less South Asians, so maybe less racism. You also heard something about sheep. The boat finally docks, and you pack the kids, their curly hair and fluttering hands, and you all take a look around. It is not Singapore, that's for sure. It's not Colombo. Shit, it's not even Horopatana. <laughs> the people here aren't quite like the English, but they're not far off, sort of scruffier. Waikawaiti is quiet, but it is full of kind people who don't throw the N-word around like the English did. And it's warm enough in the summer to wear a sarong, so you put your bags down, push your toes into the soil and start to grow. Three hungry children, four if you count Rienzi, which you do, 
and not a clove of garlic in sight. You can understand the lack of tamarind paste, fresh coconuts, good sini sambal, but garlic? Surely someone has some. You decide to go door knocking. Tony and Margaret, the couple next door, are nice. They'll have some. They smile at you blankly and compliment your sari. Garlic? No. They have fresh butter, though, and salt, pepper. Give it a little kick. (laughs) You head to another house. More smiles, more shakes of the head. You decide to write down all the recipes you learn in Sri Lanka, unconsciously planning for a time when the tastes you can still remember might be accessible. You also buy every recipe book that even mentions curry. The women on these books all look so nice. Lynn, Lynette, Linda. They have cropped hair and thick rings on their hands and they seem very confident. And their confidence gives you confidence. You make steamed pudding, egg sandwiches, you try out lasagna and creamed spinach and Yorkshire puddings. Honestly, the kids go mad for anything that isn't from your part of the world, so at least it gets them to eat. Very interesting the way these women make curry. There's a lot of sultanas. (laughs) And apples. Why do they keep trying to put fruit in it? And sausages? You show the book to Renzi and he's just as confused as you are. Recipes from many races even had something called Madras lobster, which uses curry powder, crayfish, apples and sultanas. You decide not to try this one. <laughs> After a few years in this tiny town, Renzi gets a job at, the hos- at a hospital in the big smoke, in Vicargill. You pack it all up again and say goodbye to Margaret and Tony. In Vicargill is different. You really get it for the first time. The stares, the comments, the where are you froms, and the why don't you go backs. You have your first child in this country. Somehow she has green eyes, which the doctor's wives all love to point out and make a big deal about like it makes her better. She won't grow up with fresh pawpaw and limes from the garden, or even kaya and soft eggs, but no one here will ever mispronounce her birthplace and that seems like a victory. Despite the shock of a new city and its racism, New Zealand in the 80s is not a terrible place. The boys sometimes come home with scrapes and bruises they don't explain, but you'd rather marks you can see than the ones you can't. And the girls seem happy and healthy, and they were the ones you were secretly worried about. The Gunasekara boy seems quite interested in Karenza, or Chuti as you call her, but she only has eyes for white boys. With their singlets and pointed noses, and the little veins you can see under their skin. Well, if she wants a white boy, let her have a white boy. Your grandchildren will have an easier time in this country than you did. You still can't find flat rice noodles, but garlic and curry leaves start to show up. And you you see a woman on TV use curry powder on something other than eggs, so it's getting better slowly. It changes drastically in 1983, your quiet, balanced life. Renzi and Ravi, your small girl, are out one morning playing tennis. You're up too, cooking idiapa. They come back, throwing their bags down and talking over top of one another. Renzi calls out a hello, and then small girl calls out in a way you've never heard before, and you don't see or feel your feet move, but you get there before he goes. This man you fell for in three days, made five different homes with and raised four children beside 
dies just inside your front door, cheeks still warm from tennis. And now it's just you and your youngest in this cold city at the bottom of an island, at the bottom of the world. The others are at university, filling the void the heart attack left with white boys and white girls and degrees on white paper and more freedom than you ever had. But still, there is so much to do. Bills to pay, small girl with her strange accent to protect, and other women from your parish come and step in to help, but they need support just as much as you do. Renzi's brother Hugh comes from Colombo to teach you how to drive. And it's these things, these physical tasks, which use your body, but not too much of your brain, that start to put a band-aid over this amputation. The neighbours here are kind to you. They help out as much as they can. They watch your RV when you need it. They drive with you before you're confident. They even bring you a leg of lamb. The husband presents it to you, wrapped in paper, heavy and grand in his arms. He tells you a roast is just the thing for a chilly night like this one. Why do they always talk about the weather? You smile back at him as big as you can and you take it to the kitchen where you only unwrap and stare at it. So big, so dead. These people would bang it in the oven, maybe fry the fat off the sides of it first, rub salt and pepper into it, rosemary or something at a pinch. On the table, just like that, heavy. You and this leg of lamb in this house. You get the sharp knife. You take onions, garlic, ginger, chilies you've grown here yourself, and cloves. You pound the garlic into a paste with the ginger. You put the rice on. You turn this huge foreign thing into small, understandable cubes. You move around the kitchen slowly and surely, hands making this bit salter, this bit smaller, that saltier, this softer and sweeter. You make lamb biryani and it tastes like home. One, it's super colonial. I'll probably need to go to Motat, ride a tram, and dig a well to work out the handwriting, but it's about food, and I love food. I also like looking, critiquing, and overthinking how I, as a Pacific woman, can fit into the landscape of the Auckland Museum's proposal of doing so to an object of my choosing in the documentary Heritage Collection. Is this all too earnest and uninteresting? Maybe, but who cares? Two, I've set myself a goal of working out how I picked a colonial recipe from Ireland, reinventing and reinterpreting to make it and obviously eat it and tell you all about it. It's a trifle, ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary peeps that I will be analyzing. 
First of all, the curse of handwriting pisses me off. <laughs> the only person living I know who writes like this is my older brother, Charlie, who is meticulous, left-handed, and a really good cook. Ladies, he is also single and available with no kids and is not here today because he would only be here under parental pressure. Three, so I sit in the sunniest part of the house with rays streaming through the ranch slider to see if that will help me decipher anything. After 10 minutes, I make out certain words. Macaroons in the second line, drop in the bottom of your dish, pour custard over fruit, and garnish as you please in the last line. I think, oh, I suppose I can make that right now, but I'm missing nuance and detail, like how hot to heat the oven, how much of everything. Should those macaroons be organic? What flavour of custard would work best? You know your basic first world problems of making a white dish that you probably wouldn't make unless it was Christmas and had heaps of booze in it. <laughs> Four. So I think and go, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to email this to Charlie. I send a scan of the recipe in the body and email it to his work email because I'm professional like that. I work from home, so mi casa su casa. Except that's not what it means in Spanish. I Google other stuff, check out shoes that may or may not fit me, look blankly at my bank account, and then remember it's time for lunch. Heading to my own kitchen, I turn on the radio and listen to a guest's interview, heat up some leftover mints with new rice and munch. Five. I consider looking at the other recipes from the Mulvaney as I now lovingly refer to the cookbook, and figure working out the other recipes might help me work out the writing for the trifle. Emboldened, I tackle mead. I was smart enough to take photos of food I would actually consume now. 10 gallons of water, two gallons of honey, a handful of ginger, two lemons cut in pieces, boiled and something well, the something looks like fecund, but that's weird in a recipe. Ancient or not. Uh, let it boil till an egg will float on it. Well, wait a minute. I didn't see an egg before. <laughs> this is the first time an egg has been mentioned in this recipe so far. But it stands in the same. It's at this point that I give up trying to decipher this. The serifs at the, lead ends of, at the end of letters are really beginning to grind me. I look at it again and I make out three spoonfuls of squash, question mark, and bottle it in a month. Six. The texture of the book was robust, considering it is older than the Treaty of Waitangi. <laughs> the news at the moment is all about ihu mātou. I'm not stating this to be vogue or political, but wondering as I have every time I hear about the protests, the reporting of the events, how does one feed a growing number of people? This is an unhelpful distraction for my piece, but a welcome one. Eight, there is a recipe or receipt, as the official note for the museum says, for a breast cancer remedy. Is that coming up? Out of superstition, I took a photo of this, but did not analyse or read it. But I am curious. Ten, the pages of the book are fragile and discoloured. They are dark brown with the discoloration shaped like circles. I asked Nina if there's a fancy term for this mould. She says it's called foxing. 
I scribble this down, as English is my second language. And this peculiar term might come up in a pub quiz for a team I'm never part of, and I can be the smart ethnic person on the team who knows this. <laughs> of course, I am a mother to a toddler, and we don't have lives after 6pm and stay at home. So I will just keep this term for this piece, and maybe for a future piece of writing. 11. Nina, the manuscripts curator, grabs a velvet cushion for the Mulvaney. Ooh, this book is like a fancy cat. I rest my own hands on the cushion and smugly think, I can make this. The filling puzzles me. Are those polymer beads? As I roll my palms onto the cushion, I feel relaxed. Then drilling from a con contractor next to the museum library shakes me out of any peaceful thoughts I may have had. A minute later, museum staff awkwardly gather at a nearby table. We're just having a meeting, a male says to Nina. She smiles back and indicates her approval. I turn back to the book. I'll have to be here as it's quite fragile, Nina tells me. All good, I reply. I turn the pages, pretending to be interested, looking at hieroglyphs I can't understand, and pause to write something down in my 11 notes. As I read it back in a future time, it makes as much sense as the hieroglyphs, so future me just crosses it out. I take some photos, then chance across the trifle recipe. My eyes light up. It's only 9.18 a.m., but the sound of staff members meeting, drilling, and my own brain scrambling for ideas takes this as a very good omen. This is what I will write about, because I have never made a trifle in my life. The preservation of old things is at direct odds with my love of decluttering. I aspire to be like Marie Kondo, but after reading her book one and a half times, a part of me deems 13 at wasteful, disrespectful, and woo-woo. What if I chuck out something that has money tucked away in the foxed pages of a book? <laughs> 15. As Nina puts the book away, I watch her tie two ribbons around it. She is very careful. And I wonder whether I was that careful with Mulvaney. I certainly didn't use it for target practice, but the item was not mine, not from my family, and most certainly not from my school of handwriting. The front cover is linen with what appears to be machine-edged stitches. 17. My brother emails me back, Malu Pipi. The sole line in the body of the email is, do you like trifle? Not useful. I think so. I reply as usefully, I'm deciphering it for a piece of writing for the museum. Yes, I like trifle. <laughs> <laughs> Hoping to impress my older brother and answer his question at the same time. Later that afternoon, I receive a reply from Charlie. I open it and read his reinterpretation of the recipe. 18. Top a trifle. Maple briz mac macaroon and question mark. Lofi drop in the bottom of your dish. Full stop question mark. With which question mark. Comma grouse custard over hearth question mark question mark. Capital A question mark question mark. Damn nozens soup at top syllabus or cream hyphen. Garnish this as you please. <laughs> <laughs> Wendy's large taco salad with chili and large coke no ice. Thanks. <laughs> I sputter with laughter at how his Wendy's order is the clearest thing in the email. What could damn nozens be? I'm keen to grouse custard over half. 
<laughs> Maybe I'll need Anne of Green Gables as well as MacGyver to help me. 23. I decide that it might be worth getting someone who is a professional at reading people's handwriting. So Google handwriting expert Auckland. Two results pop up, a woman based in Wellington and a guy based in Auckland. I decide to leave it for a while and attend to other things. 27, I arrive at the house, a small yellowing box-like house with a sign which states the person and their occupation. From the road, I can see lao fai, or banana trees, which always, rightly or wrongly, hint that a place may not have already gentrified. I knock and am greeted by an older man, Pakia, and smiling. Mike Marin is his name. Is Mike here? It's good, I was gonna tell you a story anyway, but it's good to know, okay, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> We head into the house, to the home office at the back, and I pass him the latest photos of the trifle recipe from Nina. Scribbling his notes, I ask him after a couple of minutes if he can analyse my handwriting. Your pen can't keep up with your brain. You pay attention to detail. Your middle zone characters' letters are slurred. I stop, impressed, chuffed and proud and tell him I have doctor's writing without the degrees or student loans. <laughs> Your eye dot is heavy, which means you can get irritable. Yep, tick. <laughs> but you balance this with your sense of humour. Mike says that to do an accurate analysis, he would need me to write half a page on unlined paper. So what about Alan's writing? Mike sets up his digital microscope, focusing it on the photos. Without looking up, he starts listing qualities. Extroverted, friendly, looks forward to the future, which you can tell by the forward direction of her handwriting. I squinted and cocked her eyebrow. When we write, we tend to favor a certain direction, slant a particular way. She was a highly organized person, which you can tell from the spacing of her writing. Alan also had heavy eye dots. Her handwriting was fairly ornate, which indicated her highest status, or perhaps the aspiration to attain that in society. It also slanted to the right. Alan's cursive handwriting was an example of the copper plate, of copper plate, a style of handwriting that roughly corresponded in the era, 1813, within which the book was constructed. Mike consults a thick textbook, which is American, and shows me the histories described of handwriting and the evolution of teaching them. We discuss the deterioration of people's handwriting, which I attribute to my personal experience of buying my first computer in 2003. I remember how quickly my handwriting started to blur and became highly illegible, to the point where people unwittingly complimented me on writing shorthand whenever I took notes. <laughs> Several ink blots and heavy pressure points in her writing indicated the pragmatic issues of writing with a feathered ink pen. The source of ink was finite, and sentences could have several different starting points, depending on when the ink ran out or overflowed. I asked Mike whether you could tell what gender or how old someone was from their handwriting. He said it was impossible, although heavy pen pressure tended to indicate the writer might be a male, whereas lighter pen pressure might be more typical of a woman. 
The microscope was, microscope was sometimes unreliable, as Mike and I set out to translate Alan's recipe or receipt. Here's our attempt. A trifle, maple biscuits, macaroons and certific or alfalfa drops in the bottom of your dish, IVT, nari, question mark, with mix, wine or juice, comma water, pour custard over or hind, comma fruit, on, flavour, slash Jones, foams, <laughs> Harkrund or password, indecipherable, AA Sanuni or Sans, uh, Soap at Hop or Dop or Lop or Pop, Syllabub of Cream or Tartar of Cream, garnish this as you please. <laughs> 34. I leave the house excited, with insight, an invoice to pay from Mike, and in a slight fog. As I drive back home, it occurs to me in this banal recipe, the act of writing something down could be another method to obscure, perhaps not deliberately by Alan. I reflect that as I do my own version of such coding, that whenever I take notes or write notes, I intend to come back to them, highlighting, crossing out, circling for emphasis or to question with compassion or with an accusatory tone. In short, I will reinterpret my notes and embellish them to make them, or whatever they were, make sense. And being literate, I have access to a certain level of Alan's world, but am unsure of the audience of the recipe, whether she made it herself, or in the language of arts funding applications, sigh, who her target audience was. <laughs> that perhaps this is her shorthand for her daughters, or servants to recreate. Perhaps the aspiration in Alan's writing is to create a legacy, a lasting testament that a cookbook would be the most acceptable and innocuous form of her wit, intelligence, and hospitality. In this moment, I realize that I cannot make and am unwilling to make whatever Mike and I translated, that it is and will be inedible half-baked and best, left to remain on the well-worn pages of the 206-year-old Mulvaney. Thank you. This has been an archival recording from the Going West Writers' Festival. Thanks for listening.